0: At its core, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger is a story about teenage angst, and its hero, Holden Caulfield, has become the prototype for adolescent rebellion. But in addition to being the driving force behind truckloads of inspired high school book reports, this classic American novel has also inspired at least one of its readers to kill. This is Killer Heart to Hearts. Welcome back to Killer Heart to Hearts. I'm Elise. And I am Will. And in this episode, you guys, we are talking about one of the most famous celebrity murders that's out there. Um, This is a case that's pretty pretty near to me. You know, having grown up immersed in his music. You know, my dad was a big fan, although, you know, he was more of a fan of the earlier Hard Day's Night stuff than the later... Trippy days, Beatles, but you know, the Beatles were the soundtrack of my childhood. Of course, we're talking this week about the murder of John Lennon.
1: His death really affected worldwide. You know, this was just, it hit every continent. Um, it was so tragic. And you know what's really interesting is a lot of times, um, the murders of these people they they do it because they want some kind of recognition or fame behind it and a lot of times we don't remember who they are
0: right it's it's different when you kill a celebrity because the public just remembers that the celebrity was killed like of course i know that john lennon was killed but you know i had i didn't remember the name of the person who killed him, um, you know. So it's different from when, like, say, like a like a serial killer himself becomes famous because he kills a bunch of people who aren't famous, you know. Then the killer becomes remembered. But when you're dealing with somebody as famous as John Lennon was in 1980 who gives a shit the name of the person that killed him
1: nobody is going to remember who you are right but um yeah this week we are going to dive into a little bit of the mind because it was a dark mind
0: yeah um very dark mind um really just bad shit you know like i don't i don't know how else to to describe it you know but Anyway, I guess let's just let's just do it.
1: Let's get into it.
0: This week's episode is called Coming Through the Rye. It was December 8th, 1980, New York City. Former Beatles frontman John Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, had a photo shoot with famed photographer Annie Leibovitz. The photo shoot was held at the couple's apartment in the Dakota building an exclusive address at the corner of 72nd Street and Central Park West, and was for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Immediately following this photo shoot, they gave an in-home interview to a San Francisco DJ. John Lennon had a lot to share. Not really with the interviewer per se, but with the greater world at large. Just as soon as he was ready, of course. You see, Lennon had been working on some new music in recent years following the breakup of the Beatles, and he was excited to perform live again after a five year hiatus. Which doesn't mean that he wasn't also apprehensive, having never truly toured solo before. He just wanted to record one more album, and then he would hit the road. In just a few short hours, John Lennon would be dead. Following that interview, at around 5 p.m., the couple departed for a recording studio across town for the scheduled mixing session of a Yoko Ono album, herself a recording artist, of sorts. And as they left the Dakota, as was his custom. John Lennon briefly stopped to acknowledge the ever-present fans that gathered outside, shaking hands and signing autographs. And one of those fans that afternoon, for whom John Lennon signed a copy of his most recent album, Double Fantasy, was Mark David Chapman. Few people were bigger fans of the Beatles than Mark David Chapman. Wait, let me rephrase that. Few people were bigger fans of the Beatles than Mark David Chapman once had been. But alas, fandom, like all relationships, can have its ebbs and flows. And soon after John Lennon proclaimed in 1966 that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus, end quote, Mark David Chapman ended his relationship with the Fab Four, broke up with them. And soon thereafter, the Beatles broke up with each other, and the band had dissolved by the end of 1970. Good riddance in Mark David Chapman's eyes, out of sight, out of mind. But someone like John Lennon, who just so happened to be Mark's favorite Beatle, by the way, certainly wouldn't remain outside of the spotlight for too long. Mark David Chapman was born on May 10, 1955, in Fort Worth, Texas. The son of an Air Force staff sergeant, Mark grew up living in fear of his father, who was physically abusive towards his mother and cold and distant towards him. By the time he was in high school, the family had moved to Decatur, Georgia, and young Mark had lost his way. Started using drugs and ditching school, became known as a garbage head, which meant that he was a particular breed of drug abuser willing to take almost anything. Mark's drug abuse was a method of escape. He was often isolated as a child, bullied even. A lack of friends in the real world led to the creation of imaginary ones to fill the void. And at around nine years old, Mark began to fantasize himself as the ruler over a group of imaginary little people that lived inside the walls of his bedroom. To each his own, I guess. Big changes were on the horizon, however. One might even say biblical. But those imaginary little people living inside his mind, fighting for control, would prove to be a recurring theme. In 1971, Mark David Chapman saw the error of his drug-fueled ways and became a born-again Christian, distributed scripture, really began walking the straight and narrow following those rocky years of adolescent rebellion. Now, where have we heard that before? Adolescent rebellion. That sounds a lot like Holden Caulfield. After becoming born again, Mark devoted himself to his faith began counseling in the inner city, even found himself a girlfriend who shared his newfound moral compass. His days of drug abuse squarely behind him, Mark and Judy was her name, were as in love as any two teenagers could be. They were open and honest with each other. No lies, no games. No, there was no room in their relationship for anything phony. Mark wouldn't have any of that. It was Judy who eventually ended it, and Mark took it about as well as you might expect, which is to say he didn't take it well at all. And it was just about then that he read The Catcher in the Rye on recommendation of one of the few real-world friends he did have, and it would turn out to be life-altering for Mark David Chapman, as Holden Caulfield became his role model. The Catcher in the Rye is often included among the very best novels of the 20th century, which is not to say it is without its critics, however. Jonathan Yardley of the Washington Post describes The Catcher in the Rye as one of the worst popular books in the annals of American literature. Can't understand how a book so poorly written is so widely peddled. But whether you love it or you hate it, it's hard to overlook how The Catcher in the Rye epitomizes existential teen angst, a theme of the novel that remains frozen in time for subsequent generations of angsty teens to discover, to identify with, emulate even. And Mark David Chapman did just that. Throughout The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield rails against the adults he comes across, who all come across to Holden as hypocritical, phony, and superficial. What's more, Holden also seems to be lamenting his own quickly evaporating youth, something that Mark David Chapman understood all too well. Almost reflexively, Mark began focusing more of his own time on the children he counseled through the YMCA summer camp. Perhaps this was a nod to the inherent innocence and sincerity of children when juxtaposed with their adult counterparts, or perhaps it was a way of squeezing every last drop out of his own adolescence. But either way, Mark became something of a Pied Piper to these kids. They even gave him a nickname. Nemo, named after the protagonist from 20,000 leagues under the sea. And for seven summers, Mark was happily known to those campers as Nemo. Then he found out just what that word means in Latin. A nothing. A nobody. Mark went on to more work with the YMCA, ended up in Arkansas, helping with Vietnamese refugees in 1975, where he continued to be close with the children in his care. But towards his co-workers, Mark could be withdrawn, reserved, and often seemed depressed. According to Mark, in everyday life, people should strive to be the very best version of themselves that they can be. And, when they weren't, he became greatly disappointed in them. And there was no one in the world Mark was more disappointed in than himself. You see, while in Arkansas working with those refugees, something happened. Mark David Chapman got laid. But there were no high fives, no bragging in the locker room. In fact, Mark was monumentally ashamed of himself. He had abandoned his morals, his faith, in favor of the most basic of instincts. He had changed. Even the children noticed the new coldness in his eyes, and how the kindness had left his face. He looked like Mark, just a different version, a scarier one. In reality, Mark had never fully recovered from being dumped by his first girlfriend, Judy. He just couldn't get over it, couldn't seem to move on. So he moved away. In 1977, Mark bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii, but this was no vacation. And, as it turned out, the fact that the ticket was one way had meaning. You see, Mark David Chapman planned to take his own life, He wanted to spend all of his money in one last splurge on the beaches of Waikiki before ending it all. He even tried once by attaching a garden hose to his car's tailpipe before a passerby intervened. And just three years later, this effort at taking a life would be redirected elsewhere.
1: See, this is where I have a lot of issue with how someone becomes goes from suicidal to homicidal yeah like it just it's like why do you have to harm someone else
0: right in Um, that
1: psyche that you're going down
0: yeah yeah And, and in this case there's a there's a definite progression there are events and things that happen that cause this suicidal Ideation to transform into homicidal ideation. We just haven't gotten there yet. But I get what you're saying. And, you know, people who go from wanting to kill themselves to wanting to kill others, I'm not sure what it is that causes that switch. Like, generally, like if if there's like a blanket reason, which I doubt, but in this particular case, You'll get a little bit of an insight coming up. Okay. During the first half of the 1970s, and following the breakup of the Beatles, John Lennon released seven studio albums, including the iconic Imagine in 1971. That same year, he and Yoko Ono moved to New York City in an effort to escape the chaos of Beatlemania. That had hounded them everywhere else they had previously called home. John Lennon loved New York. People were friendly to him, but generally they left him alone. He was able to blend into the city crowds and walk its streets in relative anonymity. For one of the world's biggest rock stars, anyway. But there was a particular group of people who always kept their eye on John Lennon who were always watching. The United States government. You see, John Lennon was passionately anti-war just as the United States military-industrial complex raged on in Vietnam. And his vocal criticism of the war resulted in the Nixon administration undertaking a three-year deportation effort. They feared that John Lennon held an inordinate amount of influence over young Americans who were just then becoming old enough to vote for the very first time. So John Lennon was frequently under FBI surveillance, until the war in Vietnam ended in 1975, that is. And it was also in 1975 that John Lennon took a step back from music and began leading a very different life than he had before sort of withdrew from the public eye altogether. Instead, choosing to focus on his family devoted five years to raising his son, Sean. John Lennon, family man. But that all changed in 1980. John Lennon began making music again. And soon, there was a new album release by John Lennon and Yoko Ono called Double Fantasy, the very same album Mark David Chapman would get John Lennon to autograph outside the Dakota on December 8th, just five hours before killing him. Following his failed suicide attempt in 1977, Mark David Chapman was admitted to Castle Memorial Hospital for treatment of his clinical depression. And upon his release, he actually began working at the hospital as a janitor. He was well-liked there, and seemed to many to have turned a corner. Others, however, weren't so convinced, and often detected a lingering darkness in him. If he was having one of those days, he could be listless, sullen. And it seemed for Mark, the highs were just a bit higher, and the lows just a bit lower than everyone else. Classic bipolar disorder. And you could read him like a book. In 1978, Mark, armed with a newfound and likely manic zest for life, set out on a -a once-in-a-lifetime, six-week vacation around the world. And that was only the second best thing to happen to him that year. He also found love again. In the very travel agent who had helped him book that trip, Gloria Abe. The two were married on June 2nd, 1979, but despite outwardly appearing to have pulled his life together, Mark continued his internal struggle with depression as he fought to keep his demons at bay. The little people who lived in his mind were winning. Throughout the early part of 1980, Mark had taken a turn for the worse. A deep depression had set in. In an effort to focus his mind on something, anything else, Mark began a monumental undertaking to go through every single book in the state library. Completely normal. This was just the most recent in a string of wild obsessions Mark David Chapman was cycling through at the time. But something was discovered during this latest obsession at the library. Rediscovered, rather. And it was like running into an old friend. A critical study of the literary works of J.D. Salinger, including The Catcher in the Rye. In Holden Caulfield, Mark saw himself. But in the next book he came across that gave him pause, John Lennon, One Day at a Time, Mark saw only hypocrisy. Mark's wife, Gloria Abe, was later quoted as saying, He was angry that Lenin would preach love and peace, but yet have millions, end quote. And Mark himself would later say, He told us to imagine no possessions, and there he was, with millions of dollars and yachts and farms and country estates, laughing at people like me who had believed the lies and bought the records and built a big part of their lives around his music. End quote. Yes, Mark David Chapman had identified the object of his ire, and it was just about time that he did something about it. In the months leading up to December 1980, Mark David Chapman's contempt for John Lennon reached a fever pitch that can best be described by the man himself. Quote, I would listen to this music and I would get angry at him for saying, in the song God, that he didn't believe in God, that he just believed in him and Yoko, and that he didn't believe in the Beatles. This was another thing that angered me, even though this record had been done at least 10 years previously. I just wanted to scream out loud, who does he think he is, saying these things about God and heaven and the Beatles? Saying that he doesn't believe in Jesus and things like that. At that point, my mind was going through a total blackness of anger and rage. So I brought the Lennon book home into this the catcher in the rye milieu where my mindset is holding Caulfield and anti-phoniness. End quote.
1: So Mark seems well. Yeah,
0: yeah, Mark's doing great.
1: You know, as you were talking, I kept on... Kind of leaning into this idea that based on some of our previous episodes, too, religion oftentimes is kind of something that these criminals lean on as a defense. And, you know, there is a big difference in being religious and using God's name to commit these acts of violence. Right. As yeah. if that is what he wants.
0: Yeah. It's, yes. Um, you know, and I know that we we used this uh, this quote from, um, not Angels and Demons, what's the one before that? Da Vinci Code. We used this quote from the Da Vinci Code in one of our blurbs from season one, I think. I don't remember what episode it was for, but um, as long as there's been one true God, there has been people willing to kill in his name and i often think about that line because it's true
1: it's very very true you know every religion has its followers that are just
0: fanatics
1: fanatics absolutely yeah. to the extreme and that seems to be the catalyst for a lot of murder
0: yeah for sure
1: I mean, those are extremists They're and throughout th- time, and we're very aware that this is just extremists that we're talking about right, right now, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and particularly you know, specifically with Mark, like the first thing that um that's like religion related is when he becomes born again and then. He he's upset by John Lennon because John Lennon in an interview said that the Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ. And I can see how that's controversial, but what gets lost is that it was completely taken out of context. Like John Lennon wasn't saying that the Beatles are are better than Jesus or or should be considered better than Jesus or more popular than Jesus. John Lennon was simply amazed at the fact that more people paid attention to the to the Beatles than paid attention to the teachings of Jesus. And he he marveled at it. He he couldn't understand it. He was like he he thought it was crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I will say that statement it irked a lot more people than just mark david chapman oh yeah so there was a whole know, movement yeah you know there's definitely a sensitivity that if you're in the limelight you just have to be careful but those words were absolutely just twisted and construed in a completely yeah different way than Lennon had inter had meant them
0: right and and if they weren't the Beatles, like if they weren't that famous, who knows if they would have survived that scandal because, yeah. because there was a lot, it was a huge deal. Like people were like burning their shit. They were like, you know, breaking all of their records, you know, like it was like, it, it was like a book burning, but it was all Beatles stuff. Yeah. Um, And who knows? But it just so happened that they were the Beatles and they were so famous that they were able to, to weather that Sounds storm back. Yeah. yeah. The planning of the murder of John Lennon could best be described as sophomoric, foolish even. It was late October 1980 when Mark first flew to New York, intent on killing him. I say first flew because, again, he had shit plans. Before leaving Hawaii, he had signed the name John Lennon on his last timesheet at work before quitting and then buying a gun. But he didn't buy any bullets. And when he arrived in New York, he learned that the bullets he wanted, you couldn't get them in New York. Shit plans. So Mark flew back to Hawaii, where he told his wife Gloria that he planned on killing John Lennon, over whom he had been obsessing. Of course, she tried her best to dissuade Mark made an appointment with a clinical psychologist, even hung up a tapestry in their apartment that featured the sixth commandment, Thou shall not kill. But what Gloria didn't do was call police. And on December 6th, 1980, Mark David Chapman returned to New York, this time stopping first back home in Atlanta to pick up those bullets. The very next day, at the 72nd Street subway station, Mark accosted singer James Taylor, who would later describe the interaction, quote, The guy had sort of pinned me to the wall and was glistening with maniacal sweat and talking some freak speak about what he was going to do and his stuff with how John was interested and he was going to get in touch with John Lennon, end quote. On December 8th, the day of the murder, Mark David Chapman spent the whole day posted up outside the Dakota, waiting. And it wasn't until 5pm that John and Yoko left for the recording studio, but not before signing Mark's copy of Double Fantasy first. I can't imagine someone signing an autograph for the man who will kill him only a few hours later. And unfortunately, I don't have to imagine it, because there's a picture of it the very moment John Lennon first met his killer. A photographer friendly with John and Yoko happened to be outside the Dakota at that moment, too. And he snapped a photo of the brief encounter, an encounter that ended after John signed the autograph for Mark, and asked him, almost prophetically, if there was anything else. If only there wasn't. If only that was all. At around 10.50 p.m., John Lennon and Yoko Ono returned to the Dakota. They exited the limousine and made their way past awaiting Mark David Chapman and towards the entrance of the building. From about 10 feet away, Mark called out Mr. Lennon before dropping down into what has been described as a combat stance and firing five hollow-point bullets from his recently purchased 38 Specials. John Lennon never even turned around. He didn't stand a chance. According to the autopsy report, Lennon was struck four times. Two bullets entered the left side of his back and traveled through his chest and left lung. One bullet exited his body and the other lodged in his neck. The two other bullets hit Lennon in his left shoulder. After the call came over the radio, shots fired at the Dakota, police were on the scene two minutes. They found John Lennon collapsed in the entryway, in an ever-expanding pool of blood. There was no time to wait for an ambulance. John was put in the back of a squad car and rushed to the hospital. Where, despite a Herculean effort from hospital staff, who quickly became all too aware just who their patient was there was nothing that could be done. John Lennon was dead. And the little people living inside Mark David Chapman's mind had won. Following the shooting, Mark remained at the Dakota and appeared to be calmly reading The Catcher in the Rye when he was taken into custody without incident. Inscribed in his copy of the book, Mark had written, To Holden Caulfield, From Holden Caulfield this is my statement. End quote. And he would later tell investigators, quote, I'm sure the big part of me is Holden Caulfield, who is the main person in the book. The small part of me must be the devil. End quote. After the murder, it would quickly be learned that Mark David Chapman had a list of substitute targets, just in case he was unable to get close enough to John Lennon. As it turned out, It wasn't truly John Lennon that needed to die after all, although he was the preferred target. The only real qualification for Mark's victim was that they were famous. And this list of substitutes has been reported to include Johnny Carson, Elizabeth Taylor, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Even David Bowie, who was appearing on Broadway in The Elephant Man at the time. Apparently, Mark David Chapman had a plan to kill Bowie while he was on stage, and Bowie would later say, quote, I was second on his list. Chapman had a front row ticket to the Elephant Man the next night. John and Yoko were supposed to sit front row for that show, too. So the night after John was killed, there were three empty seats in the front row. I can't tell you how difficult that was to go on. I almost didn't make it through the performance, end quote.
1: That is so chilling.
0: Can you imagine? I
1: can't. I cannot imagine. And the fact that John and Yoko were also supposed to be front row, Mark must have known that as well. Well. Or do you think that that was purely coincidence? I think that could have been a coincidence. Wow.
0: Yeah, I think that wow. was a coincidence. I think, I think Mark wanted to kill John Lennon on the night that he did. And if he wasn't unable to, I think he was probably going to try to kill David Bowie the next night.
1: Wow. I mean, that's just so crazy. Yeah. It just gives me chills. Yeah.
0: Yeah. After at first flirting with a not guilty by reason of insanity plea, Mark David Chapman eventually pleaded guilty to the murder of John Lennon and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He remains locked up at Greenhaven Correctional Facility in New York, To this day, he has been denied parole 12 times. Each time, Yoko Ono writes a victim impact statement. On December 10th, 1980, John Lennon was cremated. There was no public service. Instead, his widow called for a 10-minute moment of silence to be observed on December 14th more than 225,000 people responded by gathering in Central Park. And as they all bowed their heads in mourning and quiet reflection, for those 10 minutes, every single radio station in New York went off the air. In 1985, the city of New York dedicated the section of Central Park across from the Dakota as Strawberry Fields in honor of John Lennon. Countries from around the world donated trees. And the imagined mosaic centerpiece itself was a gift from the city of Naples, Italy. A testament to what John Lennon meant to so many people and just how far his influence reached. If only it could have reached into the heart of Mark David Chapman, who, at the time of the murder, saw John Lennon only as a facade, a hypocrite, a phony, in an interview with Larry King in 1992, Mark described his then feelings toward John Lennon as quote, I just saw him as a two dimensional celebrity with no real feelings. He was an album cover to me. End quote. There have been quite a few conspiracy theories surrounding the shooting death of John Lennon, the loudest of which paints Mark David Chapman as a patsy, programmed to kill Lennon by a CIA intent on silencing an influential activist. Of course, this is utter bullshit, as there has never been any proof that the U.S. government had any interest in John Lennon at all following the Watergate scandal and then the end of the Vietnam War. No. Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon because Mark was a narcissist who would never have amounted to anything great on his own. Following his crime, Mark was interviewed relentlessly by investigators and psychiatrists alike and during one of those interviews he said the following quote I'm praying that you realize that something very extraordinary has happened with an extraordinary book and without ego an extraordinary person and Lenin, an extraordinary person the Beatles an extraordinary cultural movement in the 60s and early 70s Probably the cultural experience. Musically and culturally, they changed the world as we know it. And I changed them. End quote. Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon because John was an all-time great. A Beatle. And Mark was a nothing. A nobody. He was a Nemo.
1: Wow. Yeah. um, You know, the first thing that struck me in the last part was the way John Lennon's death affected everybody else almost raised him up to deity status in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to kind of get... In the mind of Mark David Chapman, seeing, witnessing all of this and yeah. what that must have felt like, it's seeing, I mean, people worshiping. And, um, you know, I mean, even the fact that the radio stations went silent for 10 minutes, I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. I. I don't know if that's ever happened since or before. I don't know.
0: Right. Yeah, it, it that's was pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was very remarkable. Um. Yeah, it's just. I mean, he he, he went from a rock star, to a demagogue. Yeah. Really, you know. Um, and it's funny because, and it's not funny, but he was a pacifist that needed to be killed. And it's, it, it's so crazy because after the killing of, of Martin Luther King, John Lennon himself has a quote that I'm going to read for you in just a second. Um, but it's basically, well, let me just read it to you now. Yeah, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King are great examples of fantastic nonviolence who died violently. I can never work that out. We're pacifists. But I'm not sure what it means when you're such a pacifist that you get shot. I can never understand that. Wow. Like, and he used the word we... He said, "We're pacifists." He yeah. was talking about Gandhi and King being assassinated, being shot dead. Yeah,
1: and now he's one of them.
0: The same thing happened to him. Yeah, himself, a passionate pacifist.
1: Yeah, I mean, this whole story gives me chills.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's when I lived in New York, um, I had a friend who who lived on um, seventy West Seventy Second Street, but um across the street from the Dakota so when we were in his apartment we could look out the window and look down and we could see exactly where this happened and you know you said you know you had chills like like you know being a lifelong Beatles fan and looking you know down and I I didn't want to go over there because that would just be too weird for me but
1: yeah yeah and you know also when you say that mark david chapman was a nobody he was a nemo he was also a tremendous cliche
0: yeah there's nothing original about mark david chapman
1: nothing this whole story or this whole narrative it sounds like a compilation of all the crazy psychos out there and just putting it all lumping it all together and that's what you got with this guy.
0: Right. Right. You know, and and um there, there were a lot of other uh crazy people that connected to catcher in the rye in in the very same way. Um the uh, we did a we did a, an episode on one of them when we discussed Rebecca Schaefer. Right. the, the guy who killed her had like the catcher in the rye was like his manifesto
1: yeah and i mean that case itself was similar to this one Mm -hmm. because that was a stalker Mm -hmm. who was obsessed and he was drawn to her to kill her because he was such a mega fan and then she did something she was in a movie where she had she was in bed with another actor and he took it as that was a diss on him.
0: Yeah. Fans and fanatics, man. Yeah. Fans and fanatics. Big difference. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of like leads me into my next point is uh, clearly Mark David Chapman's fucking crazy. Right. On some level. Clearly. I mean, he's you know, he's diagnosed bipolar he's diagnosed I think he's diagnosed schizophrenic like he's fucking crazy Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between being fucking crazy as you know you and I say it and being crazy to the point where it's exculpatory for you where it it you know you're not guilty because of it
1: right the insanity defense right it uh, you know it's one of those defenses that I hate, um, I I I hate it because if you are going to kill someone, especially in a manner like this, you are crazy. There is no doubt about that.
0: Right. But um, in order for that insanity defense to save you is you have to you have to not understand what you're doing is wrong. That's the only way that an insanity defense insanity defense is going to work is if you're so crazy that you don't know it's wrong to shoot john lennon five times in the back or four times in the back as he you know as he's coming home you don't know it's wrong but in this case he knew it was wrong he he wrote in his book this is my statement and he didn't say a word that was to be his statement to the police when they came. Well, that shows that you know the police are going to come and get you and they're going to arrest you. And this is going to be your statement to them. Well, now you've just shown that you know it's wrong, that the police will come and arrest you. You can't use the insanity de- defense. Yeah. And that's why I think he, he, he changed his plea.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to use the disan- insanity defense, you better just run with the idea that you are insane you know that you don't know right from wrong you had no control over your actions all of it yeah because otherwise oh they're gonna catch you
0: yeah and he used different you know he had different reasons you know briefly he said that he he did it to to bring global recognition to the novel the catcher in the rye um like he he used a lot of nonsense. He said a lot of nonsense over the years. And he's at this time he's finally he has he has been accepting it. He he accepts responsibility for it, but he's still in jail. I don't think he's ever gonna get out. Yeah. Good. Yeah. God willing. Yeah all right you guys well that is our episode for this week i want to thank you all so much for tuning in and make sure you catch the next episode of killer heart to hearts killer heart to hearts is produced written and hosted by elise Budell and william cannon and is engineered by jordan calhoun